You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Let's bow our heads and have a prayer. Father, thank you so much for um, this morning. We're very grateful for how you've moved in our lives, for uh, your promises to us, for your word. So many of us have experienced uh, incredible change in transformation because of Jesus, his example, and how you've touched us. Father, I pray for uh, our church. Um, All these things we're trying to do, we really want to be like Jesus. We want to care about the world around us. We want to reach out to people. We want you to use us. And Father, I just pray you bless our efforts and uh, bless our efforts here to be a uh, healthy, growing, thriving church. Thank you so much for um, everybody that's been up here this morning to sing and or speak. And I pray you bless the sermon today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Great to see everybody today. A couple other folks that I saw coming in. Uh, where's Big J. Cole? Big J. Cole's out here. So there's Big J. Cole. So he's from Temecula and he's getting uh, his doctorate down there at uh, Pepperdine. And uh, we're praying for you. Uh, we saw the Arrhenios. What did we call you? Arneo? Or something. I messed it up a lot when we were getting to know each other. And we have the bets with us, which is really great. Also from San Diego. Uh, can you guys uh, give us a little hello? Yep, there they are. Bets. And uh, did I miss anybody else? Anybody else uh, visiting from over here or yonder or whatever it might be? Kristen, great to have you. From where? From Atlanta. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Excellent. Great to have you. Yeah, great to have you. Find a place to live yet, hopefully. Uh, yeah, we're always looking for, yeah, anyway. Today we're talking about Matthew 9, but I titled the message, In Between Eden. And um, I've got some thoughts. I think um, there's some good stuff from the Word and from the thoughts. Um, read something about a year ago about people's attention span, right? We do these sermons, they're 30, 40, however long. I don't know how long they feel, only you can answer that, right? Uh, But the Harvard, they did this at Harvard, and they did this study, and from an hour lecture, what do they really remember from an hour lecture? And they had to work really hard to come up with three good minutes of what they remember, like right after they experienced the thing. So... We are always trying to look for little hooks, little things, little take-homes for you. You know, what did we get out of the sermon? What did we think about that? So, um, I don't know how this goes. We'll see. It's very musical. It's very musical. Okay, in between Dini, what are we talking about? Today we're going to talk about um, when you, when you, the structure of the Bible, and I think the structure of our lives, follows a bit of a pattern. The Bible opens with creation and then immediately Adam and Eve and and loss. The losing of the garden or the leaving of the garden. And so we talk about that because that starts so many really difficult but life-changing experiences for us. Losing the garden, leaving the garden, loss. We're also going to talk a little bit then about the decisions we make, because when you lose the garden or you leave the garden, then you're out there and you have to reflect and you have to think 
You have to draw from value and experience and people and influence. And this is about learning. So we're always leaving. And we're always learning. And I think what Jesus teaches us is that we're always getting back to love. And here we are in between Eden. We started in Genesis, this beautiful garden, this place where people can be with God. We lose the garden. And what happens, right? Man gets a curse. Woman gets a curse. Snake gets a curse. And earth gets a curse. And we know in Galatians, um, Paul says, Jesus took on the curse. He takes on the curse on the cross. Acts and the church. And we get to Revelation. And what do we see? We see the tree of life. And we see this beautiful city, this place with rivers. What's it remind us of? The garden. And so where are we going? Heaven, yeah, but heaven is a bit of a return back to the garden. But in between... No gardens for us. Well, you can have a little herb garden or something, but we're not going to live in the garden. Where are we going to live? On the 405. And uh, in and out. This is a little better, not quite the garden. And if you're vegan, it's a little bit more hell. But that's okay. And we live in offices, and we live in classrooms. We live in algebra and history, teens, right? And we live at home and we live in all these places, but we're not in the garden. And I think we look at Jesus and what does he, what does he show us? Is he in the garden? Not really. He's down here with us. He doesn't get a degree. He doesn't buy a home. He doesn't have retirement. No insurance. Can you imagine? Right? It's so bad to live without insurance. You get in a lot of trouble today for living without driving without insurance. Jesus never had insurance. He's just out there. What's the garden for him? Loving people. And that's what he's trying to get us to. Leaving, learning, and then uh, getting back to loving people. Okay, so musical. Not there yet. Matthew 9. We're going to look at three um, examples, I think, where Jesus is touching people, working with people in Matthew 9. And at the end of Matthew 9, I love this passage. You get this passage. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Just pause there. That's really good stuff. That's this word. I'm not even going to begin to try and pronounce it. Remember, eugelion? That was a good one, but this one's too hard for me. But compassion is this thing that comes from, um, the word is trying to describe this gut experience. Right? You don't just like something. You don't just care about something. It's deeper. It comes from the gut. You've got this intense mm, gut experience with somebody or for somebody or for something. Uh, he had compassion on them. He felt it deeply because they were harassed and helpless like sheep. Without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, that's us, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, and send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we can read this a lot of different ways. We've used this passage many times in the past. This is a classic passage for us when we're starting one of our evangelistic campaigns. 
And sometimes that's good, and sometimes some of us feel a little beat up kind of by a passage like this. I don't want you to go there today. Hopefully you don't go there today. Um, this is about what Jesus is trying to do and what he's calling us to do and our experience with him, our experience with the Father, our experience with the world and the people around us. Amen? Okay, uh, here we go. So this is Rihanna Giddens, and she's singing a song called Leaving Eden. Dying's just another way to leave the ones you love. No work for the working man, just one more empty mill. Hard times in Rockingham, hard times harder still. The crows are in the kitchen. gorgeous song? Um, let's reflect back a little bit on what sh- she is saying, right? The husband has lost his job. No work in Rockingham. And she uses these lines, right? Um, the crows are in the kitchen. There's no food. And the wolves are at the door, right? Uh, We've got to pay bills. You've got to pay who you've got to pay. And that's that experience of not, you know, what are we going to do? This life is absolutely overwhelming. And nobody, nobody goes through life without these moments of being in a place where you're really overwhelmed. And she says that, right? The uh, crows in the kitchen, um, wolves at the door. Uh, our father's Eden is no more. And we don't uh, plan on stuff like that. We plan on uh, getting an A in the class and going to the good college and meeting the good guy or the good girl 
and someone gives us a nice job, and we got some benefits, and maybe a car here or there, and we live and drive off, and happy ever after. We're always looking for happy ever after. But a lot of our chapters don't look like happy ever after. And she's singing about that right now. And that's real. Right? And she's trying to express what it's like when you had this great dream, you had all these great hopes, you had um, um, so much, so many expectations, and they're crushed. You've lost them. And that gut-wrenching experience of, now what? I don't know what. I can't even talk to my daughters. I, I, I wouldn't even know what to say to them. And parents, a number of us have been in that place before, too. Wow, this is too much for me. I don't even know what I would tell the kids. What do we tell the kids? Maybe we don't tell them anything. Right? A little bit of that moment. Um, so we experience this. And this might be, you know, for mom and dad, that's that experience. It could be obviously health when you think you have a healthy body and doctors say something like you have cancer or you have to live with something that cannot be cured. That's gut-wrenching. That's gut-wrenching. i got a lot of people in my life that are living in and living with chronic illness. That's losing Eden. Well, I, I, I'm not going to get better. I just have to live with this. That's really hard. Uh, rejection is really hard. I tease about it a, a little bit. But when our campus people and our teenagers, they like somebody, you feel so vulnerable. And it's scary. And you don't know what's going on inside of you. You feel a little betrayed. I didn't really plan on liking that person. And I can't stop thinking about them. I wonder if they're thinking about me like right now. And then you put yourself out there a little bit and they do that thing. It's a conversation, but it basically says mm, friend zone. And you smile and hug and say something nice like, yeah, me too. But it's gut wrenching. It's rejection. It feels like rejection. And you got to live with that thing. Uh, maybe it's getting fired from a job. Maybe it's losing a relationship that's super important to you. Marriage, uh, death of parents, um, whatever it might be. We all live in this place, and it's very difficult. When we're in pain, when we're in pain, we are anxious. It makes us anxious. Pain makes us anxious. When you're in pain, it's hard to be present and think about the thing that's going on right in front of you. We talked about this in one of our Tuesday night classes, it's just always there. You know, I've had a number of physical pains, right? And you sprain an ankle, you tweak a knee. Uh, how many back pain people out there? We've got some back pain people out there, right? And it's like always right there in the back of your mind. And you're having a conversation and you're doing this and that. But the fact that you're, it's always right there. It makes us anxious. Uh, leads to addiction. Why? Obvious. Because we're looking for escape. We've got to get away. It feels like I can't live with the thing. I can't live with the thing anymore. I need it to go away. Addiction, whether it's chemical or process oriented. Makes us defensive, right? We don't trust people. We feel vulnerable. So we're sort of uh, reactive, defensive. Pain makes us withdrawn. Sometimes we're just withdrawn. Can't deal with them today. Pain makes us uh, aggressive. Right. That's sort of um, the preemptive strike. I'm in pain. I don't want people to see this. I'm going to punch first um, pain. What does what does it also do? It makes us very distrusting, it makes us distrusting, very guarded pain. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about what kind of pain you experience and and not to compare it to other people. That's one of the things where we get in trouble. I'm having some pain, but I'm not. 
you know, in Syria or the Middle East or and we do this to each other, to ourselves all the time. I'm not going through what they're going through, so I shouldn't be thinking about this. But you can't not think about it because you're experiencing some form of pain. So we got to do is own it. And make it yours. I'm in this pain. It's my pain. Nobody else's pain. This is my thing with God. And this isn't where I want to go blame somebody. And this isn't where I want to pretend like it's not there. I just got to own it. And I got to do something with it. And the world does it, has, is going to offer you a lot of things. But very few of any of those things are going to really work. None will really transform you. God and his word will transform you. And that's where we're going. That's what Jesus is all about. Um, pain obviously makes us unhappy. Um, there's a book out right now that I really like. just came out last year. It's by a Yale professor. The guy's name is Matthew Kessler. And he's trying to do this meta-analysis, which is just a comparison of a lot of literature that's out there. And in his book called Captives of the Mind, he's saying, is there some common factors? Are there any common factors between people that have depression, anxiety, bipolar, addiction, what, what, all of our sort of, even our most common mental health stuff. Are there any common factors? He says, yeah. Yeah, there's these common factors. He says something like, I'm just going to read you um, from his article uh, or from uh, his opening in his intro- introduction. He says, what I wondered, what else I wondered could exert such control over thoughts and actions. Isn't it possible that the same biological mechanism that selectively controls our attention and drives us to chain smoke or overeat, in other words, to behave in ways that are not beneficial to our well-being, is also responsible for a range of emotional suffering. After years of research, I've come to the conclusion that there is, in fact, a common mechanism underlying many of our emotional struggles and mental illnesses. Simply put, a stimulus, a place, a thought, a memory, a person, takes Hold of our attention. Shifts our perception. And once our attention becomes increasingly focused on the stimulus, the way we think and feel and often what we do may not be what we consciously want. What does this remind us of? Romans 7. The good I want to do. The good that I want to do. I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I do. And I keep finding this thing over and over going on in my life. And he finishes it up with this great thing about, and I, and I find this to be true, the members of my body are in a sense kind of waging war against one another. So he says, uh, our attention becomes increasingly focused on the stimulus, the way we think and feel and often what we do. Uh, it's not what we want to do. I've termed this mechanism capture, capture. Capture underlines many forms of human behavior, though its effects may be um, detrimental or beneficial. Viewing our behavior through this lens helps explain the power that capture has over us when it drives us to destructive impulses. The theory of capture is composed of three basic elements. Narrowing of attention. Hard to think about something else. Narrowing of attention. Perceived lack of control. I'm overwhelmed. I can't stop doing this thing. And change in affect or emotional state. I want to be happy, I'm down. I want to be calm, but I'm super anxious. I want to be over here, but I'm over there. This lack of I can't control how I feel. Capture entails more than just the initial marshalling of our attention. Capture changes our mood by evoking memory or imagination, desire 
or fear. So I want you to hold on to that and think about your week. Think about your life. Think about where you are today. What captures you? What's this experience? What's this stimulus? What's this memory? What's this person? What is this thing that happens? And you know it's happening. I'm not really present. uh, It's got my attention. Narrowing of attention. Hard to, we call this a little bit of the out-of-body experience. I don't feel like I'm in my body. I'm kind of out here somewhere and my body's just going through the motions, right? This kind of thing. Lack of control. I want to not do this, but I keep doing it. Or I want to do this and I'm not doing it. I want to study. I can't study. This kind of thing. And then this change in affect. Um, I'm just down or I can't stop being anxious. That kind of thing. That's when we know we got a thing. Uh, what do we do? Again, we don't blame other people for this. Although other people could be causing it. And we don't throw rocks at the world in a sense. We can, but it's not going to really help you. Again, you got to own it. What am I going to do with this thing? Now I've got this thing where I've got to go and wrestle with God. And it's the only place we really work this kind of thing out. Psychology is helpful. gives us some tools so that we can concentrate or that we can reduce some symptoms. But you still got to go do the work that's between you and God and your ability to transform this thing. And I think it's really important. It's really big deal in how we go forward and grow in life. Richard Rohr, we're reading his book, um, Falling Upwards, in our Tuesday night class. He says, if the pain of your story is not transformed, it will be transmitted. Remember that. If the pain of your story is not transformed, it'll be transmitted. We follow all of these stats, right? And we follow stats on, on a little bit of everything. I didn't want to become like my dad. I didn't, I didn't want to become an alcoholic. But my dad's an alcoholic. I did everything in college not to become my dad. Oh no, I've become my dad. I'm an alcoholic. I hear women say this a lot. I was beat as a kid. I was hit and beaten and abused. And I, I wanted everything in me not to become an abusive mother or an abusive parent. And what we didn't know from the stats, most people that abuse their kids come from homes in which they were abused. So we see these chains. It's rare that it just comes out of nowhere. Right? We've got families, generational stories where pain is not transformed and then it becomes transmitted. And we've got to watch for this kind of thing. It affects us. It affects our ability to have a real spiritual connection and or experience. I'm just in the middle of kind of a pain story in my family. So in Matthew 9, let's go to um, Matthew 9. Back to Matthew 9. What's Jesus doing before he gets to that great thing in verse 34? Let me read this. He says, um, this is the paralytic, a little more famous in Mark's version. But it says he stepped into a boat. Crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, sons. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I love this. We all love this. Jesus, the guy's paralyzed. And he's laying on a mat. Why are you forgiving him of his sins? He needs you to help him walk. You look a little out of it. Because Jesus knows what's really afflicting us, doesn't he? Jesus is taking care of the thing that really is the big deal. Jesus, I think, does have a, a priority chain here. I've got to heal the heart. I've got to heal the spirit first before I do anything else. 
spirit first. Amen, church? Spirit first. Before he does anything, the guy's still laying on the mat. Takes a lot of audacity, I think. You know what? You're okay. Your sins are forgiven. I think the crowd is sort of right, holding its breath a little bit. Is that, is that it? Is that all he's going, is that all he's going to do? Are we going to see some kind of change? We're going to see any transformation. Uh, he heals them of his sins first. Verse four, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up, went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who'd given such authority to men. What a great moment again. He does heal him. And now he's whole hearted and whole in body. This is a totally different guy. Now you can go. Now you can go home. And so we get this great um, um, picture of Jesus healing the spirit. God knows what's going on inside of us. He knows the real healing we need. He knows many of us are going to live with the thorn in our physical flesh. But none of us have to live with the thorn that's in our spirit, the sin thorn that's in our spirit. None of us have to live with the guilt thorn that's in our spirit. That needs to be dealt with and can be dealt with 100% by every one of us today. And so he does this with them. He heals them. And now, you know, what's cool about this. I love this. I wish you had, um, right. These follow-up stories afterwards, there'll be a follow-up Bible where we get to see where all these people went afterwards. Now, Jesus, this guy still has most of the same problems that he had at night as he had in the morning. He's a paralytic. Does he have a good job? No, I don't think so. He's a paralytic. Does he have, um, you know, great friends that he plays basketball with in the gym. I don't think so. Uh, does he have a career? No. What about his family? He does have family, but he's still going to have to figure out his life. Jesus doesn't give him a job. Jesus doesn't give him a lottery, a winning lottery ticket. Jesus doesn't give him um, a wife. Jesus doesn't give him great friends. Jesus doesn't give him food. Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to heal you, touch you, heal now you got to go do something. I'm kind of handing a life back over to you. Jesus doesn't give us a life. You got to create that on your own with God. And so here he heals them, sends them home, not broken anymore, whole, but he's still got to figure out his life. I think that's really something. But without the weight of sin and without some of his physical ailments, well, what, who knows what he can do? Who knows what he can do? But he heals them. He sends them home. Why go back home? Ah, you got to experience connection. All of these things have something to do with connection. I think it's fascinating. Go back home. Experience home in a new way. Experience connection in a new way. Um, and they're in awe. Okay, second point. We're going to get to the next miracle guy. But this is, uh, right, losing learning. This is um, Layla Michaela. You just saw her playing the... Um, bass or the cello there in the first song she has her own album and a number of songs that she's done this song is just a cover of a langston hughes poem langston hughes um popular through or via sort of the harlem renaissance there okay so this is his poem that she's singing <laughs> 
Again, great song. What does she say? This word, I don't have a heart of gold. I don't even have a heart of lead. I got a heart of clay. And I want us to read uh, Mark 9 here about Matthew. Matthew, of course, is a tax collector. He's hated of the hated. And in uh, Matthew 9, verse 9, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Um, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, uh, but the sinners. So there's Matthew, and yeah, he didn't have a heart of gold. He sold out a long time ago. You guys know the story. He's a Jew, and he's collecting taxes for the Romans. We hate the Romans. The only thing that we hate more than the Romans are the Jews that are helping the Romans. And that's exactly what it is. He's probably very wealthy. Very wealthy man that has nothing. Probably very lonely. Uh, probably very bitter. We're thinking he conjures up a little bit of the Scrooge uh, character from Dickens's novel, right? And he doesn't have a heart of gold. He doesn't have a heart of le- He's just clay, just nothing. And I love this. Jesus calls this guy. Jesus calls Matthew. Who does Jesus call? Jesus calls paralytics. 
Who does Jesus touch? He touches paralytics. Who does he call? He calls Matthew. Heart of gold? Oh, man, no. Terrible heart. Broken heart. But then when he touches him, when Matthew experiences this moment with Jesus, he's transformed. He can't contain himself. He immediately has this party and brings in all these other tax collectors and sinners and whoever it might be, and they're having this party. And Jesus is there. What a great moment. Now, what's he going to do? I don't know what he's going to do. He, he might quit his job. He might, well, he is because he's going to follow Jesus. But, but we love this. Then what becomes of his life? Well, he goes from a rich man to actually a poor man. And he probably had a home and now he doesn't. They just wander and are going about their thing. Why? Because back to being in between Eden, he's found out that in between Eden isn't having a lot of money. In between Eden is being able to touch these other people and have a meal and they all come and celebrate together. Ah, we're back in Eden. We found a couple of others. This is our Eden. No tropical paradise, no tree of life, no rivers, uh, no National Geographic moment here. It's just some broken people having a meal. That's our Eden. That's what God and Jesus are hoping for us today. you got no relief. You're probably not going to get any relief at work, and you're not going to get any relief from teachers and calculus. And you might not get any dating relief. And we've been having a great marriage class, but I've been watching some of the marriages. Actually, it's difficult because they're trying to work through things, and it's hard work. And it doesn't feel like Eden. Because he keeps doing, he keeps being him. And she keeps being her. And I thought the class would be a magic wand, and all that would go away. And it doesn't work like that. We work through, and then you get that moment where we can connect and talk. That's our Eden. We're back in the garden right there. But we resist that, and we go to sin. We go to uh, 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 escape. We go to abuse. We go to running away. We go to subjugating or abdicating or whatever degating. We do a lot of degating to get out of facing and dealing with the issue that's right in front of me. Why do we do this? Because it's scary. You're scared. You're angry. You're afraid. You're stressed. There's all these triggers. You don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Because God knows what to do. Matthew didn't know what to do. And he has this big party. Now his life's transformed. Now it's a little overly simplified. You can't just have a party and all your problems are going to go away. That, and that's cool. That'd be great. I want to go to that church. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't quite work like that. So Matthew gets a big heart change. Matthew gets a big heart change. He's caught up in a lot of sin. He's lost his Eden for sure. Lost in himself. I was going to talk a little bit more about that, but I'm going to move on. And now he's restored. Now there's a sense of community. Now again, there's a sense of connection. Now there's a sense of I'm in the world and it's working. I've got God, this Jesus guy, and these other people around you. That's what we're seeing. That's what's happening. And remember this, right? Remember this. This is so important for us. Uh, Isaiah the prophet. What does God say in Isaiah the prophet? You're... Your righteous deeds, all these good things you do, it's really not that much to me. They're like filthy rags. 
Um, the rich young ruler says, good teacher, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, good teacher, why do you, what, what's good? Why do you call me good? No one is good. But this is hard for us to own. You know your thoughts. We all have bad thoughts. You know what's inside. We all have bad stuff in our hearts. You know, we love, we love, I'm going to do a wedding next month, and they want to do the First Corinthians 13 poem. Isn't that beautiful? Who doesn't want that at their wedding? It's great. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not easily angered. Yeah, but you know what? You are angry and easily angered and like to boast and think more about yourself than the other person and want everything to go your way. And that's how we're more or less wired. So that poem, it sounds nice, it's romantic, but it's an incredible upward challenge to lose self and get up to this other place. And you know what's up here? A garden moment. But you gotta leave, you gotta leave your case, and I got a great case for why I'm right, and you gotta give up wanting to be right, and some of your hurts, you gotta get back over to God, and you have to do the forgiveness thing, or it's not gonna work. Um, and you have to deal with your, what's going on inside of you. You have to deal with sin. But, but we get stuck in this. Am I better than the other person? See, in our story, we're always the good guy. Did you notice that? When you think about your life, your story, you're always usually end up being the good guy. And the other person's the bad guy. That messes us up. Then we get into counting. Then we get into measuring. Then we get into grading. And you know what most of us have noticed? It happens in the church a lot. The way we talk, am I a better Christian than you are? Are you a better disciple than me? Do you have more disciple points this week than I do? This is a gargantuan waste of time. Do good because it's what we're supposed to do, but we've got to stop grading and counting and measuring. Let's reach out. Let's love. Let's give. Let's do that. It's, it's, it's all consequential because of this great thing that's happening inside of me. I want to share with five people and then count how many other people share with and keep track of that. And we used to do that in the church a lot. With I met Joe, and Joe became a Christian. And I want you to introduce. I want to introduce you to my personal fruit, Joe. You've heard this, right? I've heard this a hundred times. Oh, see Joe over there. He's my personal fruit. Why are you saying that to me? You need disciple points, don't you? I'm not counting. I'm trying not to count. God knows you're okay. Let's go meet Joe. He looks like he needs a hug. Okay? So we got to get back into what God is doing with us and owning our life. Paul plants, Apollos waters. Who gives the increase? God gives the increase. That's what it's about. Amen? Amen? Okay, let's finish up. Uh, we get to the blind and the mute guy. And uh, we love him. That's pretty straightforward. Verse 27. Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked him, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? Their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. This is great. I love this. This happens all the time. But they went out and spread the news about them all over that region. And while they're going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. It said, nothing like this has ever been seen 
in Israel. And so these guys are a little bit different. You've got a paralytic, and he's got a sinful heart. And you've got Matthew the tax collector. He's rich, rich, but he has nothing. And here's two random guys. They're blind and they're mute. So they're probably not very popular. And they just kind of have each other. They're probably, you know, don't get, I'm, I hate to be facetious, but they probably don't get a lot of dates. And they just, it's just a desperate, very desperate way of life for them. So there's this sense of being dislocated. And what does Jesus do? I love what he does is he touches them. It doesn't matter how far out there you are. And it doesn't matter if you feel like you don't have the words or you can't hear. And we all experience this. I don't have the words mute. I, I deaf. I can't hear. I know what they're trying to say, but I can't get it. We all experience some spiritual blindness and muteness. And then they go out and tell everyone. Church has got to be a place. We want church to be this place where we've been blind and we're mute and we can come back in. And what do they do? They tell it and we tell our story. We've all been touched by Jesus. How did Jesus change you? How did Jesus change me? Let me tell you that story. I got to tell you that story. And then we go back out and we have lunch and we go into the world. And what do we do? We tell that story. It's this place, again, where we have connection to a different life and a different connection to people because Jesus did something to me. Not because I was so righteous. Not because I, I worked so hard to be this good person. It's because Jesus is amazing and outside of that, nothing else matters. Last song, right? I think I've got a couple of Foo Fighter fans out there. Times like these. And so what counts? We love this passage from uh, Galatians 5. What counts? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And if the Foo Fighters know this, the Foo Fighters know this. (laughs) What time is it? It's time to live again. It's time to love again then how much more so should we in the church know this? Is there more love in you? Everybody, I believe, unequivocally could say, yeah. 
Deal with your pain. Deal with your sin and your lostness. And then we come back to this Eden experience of being able to love again. Because it's the only thing that really counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And when we have this experience, and here Christians say this all the time, Christians are super excited when they get super fancy cars. Usually not. They usually don't. I just don't hear people talk about that very much. Christians are super excited when they win the lottery. I don't know. I, I've actually never talked to a guy that did that. But yeah, okay. They'd probably shrug it off a little bit. Christians usually are really excited when they have this great conversation with somebody and they feel like there's some kind of connection and love expressed. And now we're back in Eden. And Christian person that's with us today, we want you to remember that this is what God is really trying to get us back to. There is an Eden for us. Not a fancy garden in National Geographic. This place where we get healthy and we deal with what's really going on in our life and we get back to this place of loving. Jesus didn't have a home and a career and a fancy anything. But he, I think, lived in an amazing spiritual Eden because it was about loving other people. Uh, think about this. I hope you enjoyed the songs and that those would stimulate a little remembrance. Uh, we're going to sing one last song in closing. Great to see everybody. Hope the Harvest Festival. Be praying for the Harvest Festival. It's going to go great. Love you guys. Love the church. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.